Philippians chapter 1, and I'll read from verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put there for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. If you've got your Bible with you, uh, could I ask you to close it? Because before we get here, uh, I want to ask you something and to really ask you to think. Not that we're not going to think when we get to the Bible. Um, If you've got a a pen and paper or if you've got a gadget that you use to take notes, if you could write down this sentence for me, please. For to me, to live is blank. And don't show anybody else. And if you haven't got something to write down, um, could you think really clearly about what you would fill that blank with? What is it that gets you up in the morning? What is it that keeps you going through the day? What is it that ultimately drives every single thing about your life? For to me, to live is... Hopefully there's something in your head, on your pad, on your phone. Uh, Second question. For to me, to die is blank. When you think about the end of your life, what is it that fills your mind? Is it full of fear? Is it full of hope and joy and expectation? For to me, to die is. Now, if you've been honest with your answers, you'll have done one of two things. And there are only two options. Uh, You will either 
have done what Paul has done. And the whole of your life is driven by Jesus. He is the motivation for every single thing that happens in the course of your day, ultimately speaking. And he's your great hope as you look towards death. Because he's conquered death and you know that in him, you'll conquer death too. But perhaps others of you have been honest and you've put something else as the thing that is their main thing for living. And if you've done that, I'm really glad that you've been that honest. Because that's the only way this exercise is going to be any use to you. What I want you to see as you look at the answers that you've written for those two sentences is that unless Jesus is the answer to everything and your purpose for living, nothing else that you put in answering that question will help you in death. Now, there may have been a whole range of answers to that first question. Many of you perhaps will have thought about the the wonderful blessing of family or friends or finances or career or home. And as good as they are, they're, they're really the main thing in your life. So let's think about how that helps you answer the second question. Take money. Uh, perhaps some of you would be driven in all that you're doing in life to be richer. And you can define richer however you like. Um, comfortable living, a millionaire, a billionaire, What does that do when you die? Perhaps others of you would uh, answer the question somewhat differently. Um, And maybe your longing is to be famous. Perhaps especially if you're younger, um, you're the TikTok generation and would absolutely love to have millions of followers on TikTok. You get all of the revenue that comes from all of the income. You can just let everybody in on your life and make an absolute fortune doing it. That would be brilliant, right? Um, well, what happens when that comes to an end and you die? Your funeral might be slightly bigger than other people's. You might even have some famous people come to your funeral But what will happen to your TikTok account when you lie buried in the grave? If Jesus isn't the ultimate purpose of your life and the answer to the first question, nothing else you put there can sustain you in death. Now, please would you open your Bibles and we'll turn back to Philippians and what I want to do is pick up where we left. It's kind of James to read the passage that we looked at last week because we are continuing one real train of thought here. Uh, If you were with us last week, we saw that for Paul, and he looked on his past and his present, his only goal is that Christ be preached so that the gospel would advance. So that was true in the past. We thought about his journey from Jerusalem to Rome and all of those sufferings. And as Paul looked back on his past, he said, well, even that has served actually to advance the gospel. And he thought in exactly the same way about his present. There he was in his house arrest. And despite all of the suffering of everything that was going on, he chose to invest his suffering. So he was evangelizing elite soldiers. He was building up other Christians who heard of his testimony. He was doing a remarkable work 
in choosing to look at the fact that a bunch of preachers who hated him and were trying to preach in a way that would harm him were actually still preaching Christ. And so because of all of that, end of, or beginning of verse 18, he rejoiced. This week, we're going to see how living for Christ's glory into the future continues that hope and rejoicing. And what I want you to see is the very practical way for Paul that longing to exalt Christ in this life and in death changes the way that he lives. Uh, perhaps you're here as a busy parent, grandparent, child, whatever it is. There's been a thousand and one things going on in your week. We get to the Bible. The preacher stands up all excited and says, we're going to talk about exalting Christ for the rest of your life. And you're thinking, okay, but what does that really look like? Well, let's work through this passage by asking this question. What does it really mean to exalt Christ tomorrow and forever? That's Paul's question in verse 20. Actually, it's what's driving the whole of this text. What does it really mean to magnify Christ in the future of our lives? And I want you to see what it gives us, what it helps us focus on, and what it frees us to do. That's where we're going to go. Firstly, exalting Christ tomorrow and forever gives us a joyful confidence in our salvation. So Paul was rejoicing, beginning of verse 18, because even though there were a bunch of preachers who hated him, Christ was being preached and the gospel was advancing. And he picks up that theme uh, into verse 18 and goes on to say that he's expecting that joy to continue because, look at verse 19, What's happened to him will turn out in the future for his deliverance. And Paul's eagerly looking forward to the day, verse 20, when he won't be ashamed. Now, what's Paul talking about? I can vividly remember reading this passage about 25 years ago when I was a teenager. Um, and from that day until this week... I had always understood this passage to be talking about Paul's great hope of being freed from prison. And that completely makes sense, doesn't it, on a, on a first read of the text. That's the thing that pops to mind when you hear the word deliverance and uh, being freed from prison when he's not guilty of anything at all. That's going to remove any shame. And when you get down to verses 25 and 26, that's the very thing that he ends with, the hope of being freed uh, all of that is true, and it may well have been in the back of Paul's mind. But I don't think it's at the front of his mind. The more I've studied this, this week, I think he's focusing on his future salvation in glory. And let me share with you what I've learnt this week and see if it helps you too. So look at verse 19. Paul specifically links his struggle to his deliverance. What has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. It doesn't make a lot of sense to say that the suffering that landed Paul into prison would be the thing that would lead to him being freed from prison. Verse 20, the deliverance he's looking forward to is something that he eagerly longs for and hopes for. And that phrase, that is loaded with meaning. This man is desperate for this salvation deliverance to happen. And for someone who has made the most of investing a season 
incarcerated, though in his own home, to evangelize, to be an encouragement to others. It seems like that kind of longing is describing more than you might express if actually you were so invested right where you are. And you look at the end of verse 20, the deliverance he's looking forward to is something that will happen whether he lives or dies. Irrespective of whether he's released from prison or not, Paul is fixed on exalting Christ in his body. Now, on top of all of that, and I didn't know this until I dug into the text this week, um, there's good reason to think Paul's referring to two different Old Testament passages here. The first is Job's cry to God in Job 13. And it uses a lot of the similar language that Paul's going to use here. So in Job 13, just pulling together a few verses for you, Job cries out, keep silent and let me speak. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. Same word. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Now, if you spend some time reading Job 13 when you get home this afternoon, Job is not concerned here with being vindicated in front of his family and friends. He is looking forward to being vindicated before God because he wasn't guilty of things that led to all the circumstances that happened in Job's life. And when Paul refers back in Philippians 1 to not being ashamed, he uses the same language that he uses twice in Romans when he quotes Isaiah. So, end of the doxology in Romans 9, Paul writes, The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. He quotes the same verse from Isaiah in chapter 10 when he says, As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. The shame in Isaiah and Romans, isn't that subjective feeling of embarrassment? It's that objective reality of disgrace by being judged by the God of heaven. Now, if you pull all those things together, I don't think Paul's rejoicing here, verse 18, 19, 20, at the prospect of being freed from prison. I think he's longing for the day when he is going to be fully and eternally saved. And that word deliverance really means salvation. You may well have a footnote in your Bible um, to the word deliverance that takes you down and says, or vindication or salvation. That's the soteria word in Greek for salvation. And if you're used to anything that Paul's ever written, you'll know that salvation isn't just a, you say it once and it always means this kind of word. Paul uses salvation and sometimes he's talking about what's happened in the past. Sometimes he's talking about what's happening right now. You are being saved And sometimes he's looking forward to the future and he's longing for that great day. That's what he does in Romans 13. Our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. That's the sense, I think, that Paul has in mind when he says here that he is rejoicing with this hope of his deliverance. That's what's bringing him joy. In the middle of everything that's going on for Paul, his determination, verse 20 is to exalt Christ in his body with all means now in the hope of his eternal salvation then. Why spend all that time looking at that detail? Here's why. We're not in prison. 
And if the only thing that Paul was talking about here is his hope, his joyful confidence in the fact that God was going to release him from prison, that wouldn't mean a very great deal to us right now. It would be lovely to know that Paul was freed from prison to do all the things that he was going to go on to do. But how does that shape our lives now? If, however, what he was looking forward to wasn't just being freed from prison. It was the joy of the day when he would be finally, fully saved. And he was looking forward to that day and knew a sense of peace and joy and confidence today because of what that day would mean, then that makes sense to all of us. Because we are looking forward to the very same day. And it means that whatever circumstances of life we may be in, whether they be as severe in limiting our freedom as they were for Paul when he was chained to a guard, or in anything that's less serious, there is a joy and a confidence now Because that is our hope. That's why we wanted to spend some time here. Now, before we move on, we do need to move on. I want you to see two really surprising things here. Well, one's really surprising. In all this hope that Paul has of getting to that day, not released from freedom, eternal salvation, look at the amazing means that God uses to get him there. So we already know that it's all of God's work. And you only have to look back to verse 6 where Paul's already said that his great confidence is that he, God, who began the work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So he knows his salvation is completely guaranteed. And yet, God uses means. The least surprising means, verse 19, is the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ has ascended to heaven. He is bodily present with the Father and will physically return at the very end of time. And in that gap, when he's not physically with us, he has sent his spirit to comfort, to challenge, to conform, to bless, to sustain. But more surprising in verse 19 is the prayers of the Philippians. I love that little detail. I love that there's Paul stuck in his little house arrest, longing for the day, not when he'd be free, but when he'd be eternally safe in glory forever. And that day fills him with such joy, it's shaping the way that he's living now. And the source, the ultimate foundation for that joy and that great hope is the fact that God's the one who began the work and God's the one who's going to end the work. And there he is looking towards that certain event and says, it is in part going to happen because you're praying. Isn't that a remarkable thing for the apostle to pray? To say to this group of churches that he, under God, founded those 10 years before. He's looking at something that certain that is all of God from beginning to end and says, I need your prayers. Now, I wonder whether we think about our prayers being that important today. 
I wonder whether we need to, to see how important our prayers are, even for things that an apostle was that certain about. Because God uses means. It's lovely that Sam was focusing on prayer in the catechism this morning. None of this is that coordinated, I promise you. But we are to pray about anything, anywhere, at any time. And those prayers aren't just the, you know, grumbling children's, please can I have this from a heavenly father prayers. They're the God loves to hear and answer because they're one of the means he uses to accomplish his plan prayers. Secondly, exalting Christ tomorrow and forever focuses us completely on Christ in life and in death. If I was to ask you, what is the best single verse summary of the Christian life? What would you say? Um, we don't really do feedback in the middle of a sermon, do we? Have a chat about it over coffee. Uh, all come and find me. Uh, maybe not all at once. Uh, what do you think is the best single verse summary of the Christian life? I think you can make a pretty good case for Philippians 1 verse 21. I think the way it captures everything about a life consumed by God would perhaps be one of the best mission statements that you could choose. Um, but many of you work in businesses and organizations where pithy uh, strap lines are quite the thing. And you're a bit cynical about all of that because you work in the organizations where your experience day to day is nothing like the branded slogan that some marketing department comes up with next. And so you hear mission statement and your, your alarm bells are already ringing because you're a bit jaded and cynical about mission statements. So let's look at what this mission statement actually does. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does that actually look like? Well, if the Lord spared him and freed him from prison... Uh, he was not going to book himself on a fully catered retreat to the Canaries for some R&R. I think I would have done. Think about that journey that he'd had from Jerusalem to Rome. You think about the injustice that he'd experienced. You think about the shame of being strapped by a chain to a Roman soldier for nothing that you'd ever done. I, I would need a month off. Verse 22. Paul is so determined to exalt Christ in his life that he says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Fruitful labor is, um, is Paul's language for, I'm going to give every single moment of my life to bring glory to Christ and be a blessing to others. That's the way Paul is thinking about going out to preach good news of salvation to people who are otherwise destined for an eternity in hell. It's a way that Paul is going to think about building up Christians so that they may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Paul's got in mind the idea of raising up another group of Timothys and Tituses to lead churches that have been planted and to go and plant other churches that haven't yet been planted. That's what Paul has in mind when he says fruitful labor. Getting free doesn't mean being free. It means being free to give yourself 
for God's glory. And if I could just pause there for a moment, that sets a phenomenally challenging example to every single one of us at every single stage of life. But I wonder if it's perhaps especially challenging if you're in that season of just about to retire or have just retired. Because we live in a world which tells us that when you finally manage to step off the treadmill, you deserve just to have a break and to step back and enjoy life. And don't get me wrong, at the time you get to retirement, um, there will be a great sense of a breather and you will need to make lots of changes. You may move house to be closer to family. You may change all sorts of circumstances in your life. But Christians don't retire. So if you're in or about to be in that season and you're starting to think, I wonder what we're going to do. Can I gently encourage you to write verse 22 at the top of your page? If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. May it be the same labor? Because ministries change. There's good reason to stop doing one thing and think about doing something else. Or maybe your health doesn't permit you to replace one ministry for another. But you can use the time to pray for 10 other ministries when you weren't committed to something else. Ministry may change, but our focus to serve Jesus never should. There's Paul's commitment to Jesus in his life. Let's look at his commitment to Jesus as he thinks about his death. What Paul longs for, and when you look in verse 23, there is a real sense of longing. I desire to depart. That's actually the verb that is more usually used of the lust and the longing for things. And Paul's not saying it's a wrong desire. He's saying the the longing that he has for that carries all of that same emotion and drive and energy that often is misused in other places. But here he is, desiring to depart to be with Christ. Verse 21, that's the great gain. Compared with living on and serving Jesus in this life, verse 24, that is better by far. And there are so many things that Paul, as with us, was no doubt looking forward to about being in glory. So you only have to read Romans 7 to know that Paul was longing to be done with his battle for sin. He hated longing to do things that he then did the opposite and not doing the things that he wanted to do. And on top of that, I'm sure he was free, longing to be free from the weight and the burden of ministry. 2 Corinthians 11, he writes, apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Even a good thing like ministry over all sorts of different churches has put a weight and a burden upon his life. And he would no doubt have been longing for the day when that labor would be done, when the Lord Jesus Christ would look at him and say that that ministry was finished, well done, good and faithful servant. There's all sorts of things that would have been in Paul's mind that he was longing for about that day, but none of them are what's better by far. The better by far is the prospect of being with Jesus and at home with the Lord. And I can't give you an earthly parallel for that longing. If you're married, you've been away from your husband or wife for work, for whatever it is, for a week, two weeks. There's an enormous sense of longing 
to be back together. Think about all the Ukrainian and Israeli and Palestinian mums and wives who are longing for their husbands and sons and fathers to come home. Add all of those and every other longing together. This longing is greater. Because this will bring us to our maker and redeemer. We will be face to face with the one who made faces and chose to wear one himself. We will meet the giver of life who chose to give up his life in order to save us. We will be able to hug the uncreated one with arms that still show the limitless love he has for you. Limitless love that would save us. Limitless love that would be patient with us as we stumbled and failed and didn't do all of the things, Romans 7, that we would have loved to have done. Limitless love that is sufficient to guarantee that he will bring us safely home. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. Look back if you wrote them down at those two sentences that you wrote at the very beginning. Are you ready to die because you know you'll be with Jesus? And if so, are you ready to live every moment for his glory until he calls you home? It struck me this week that we are not ready to live until we're ready to die. Thirdly and finally, exalting Christ tomorrow and forever frees us to care more for others than ourselves. Given everything that Paul has just said, verses 24 and 20 to 26 are remarkable. You think about the, the glory that Paul has been wrapping his mind around for everything that he is looking forward towards. There is literally no vocabulary to describe that. And Paul's the kind of preacher who makes up words to try and describe what otherwise he can't describe. You can't describe all of this wonderful glory, and he is longing for it. You have that wonderful sense as you go through from verses 22 onwards about his great desire that's kind of pulling him because he desperately wants to be there. And then with all of that in front of him, glimpsing into all that glory, verse 24... But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. That's staggering. Now, if your mind's anything like mine, your brain will be full of all sorts of weird questions on the tertiary. Like, how did Paul know? How was he able to make a choice? Did he have a vision? Had he got some idea of what the judge was going to say? And you go off in some random tangent that isn't the point. If we were supposed to know or care about that, God would have told us. He hasn't, so we don't. What's the point? The priority that Paul shows us of others over himself and what that looks like. So, for all he longed to be with Jesus in glory, it was more necessary 
to continue to help the Philippians and all the other churches like them. What's that going to look like? Verse 25, he's going to make them exalt Christ. That I'm going to continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, you're going to boast in me. We're going to have a big party. We're going to have all sorts of fun together. No, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. The only role that Paul sees himself having with all these other churches that he wants to bless is that he'd be the conversation starter that gets everybody else talking about Jesus. That's his goal. That he would help progress them in their faith and in their joy in Christ. Now that could not be more countercultural in our day. That Paul could look at something that was better by far for himself and choose, humanly speaking, there's some rhetorical language going on here, of course, to defer that because it's more necessary for others for him to do something else. Can you imagine what Emmanuel Church would be like if every single one of us was gripped by a conviction that although something was better by far for me, I'm going to do what is more necessary for someone else. Imagine if all the churches up and down our land and around the world had that kind of self-sacrificing longing to be a blessing for other people. And his focus here is clearly on the church family. But we face this best for me, more necessary for others dilemma in every other sphere of life, all the time. So, what is it going to be when you get home this afternoon? What's better for me to just be able to have some downtime? Or what's more necessary to be a blessing to my family, to the people you're giving hospitality to, to other people that you could go and visit? At home, maybe it's free time. I find the word free time a bit of an odd thing because it forgets that all the time is God's time. But anyway, free time or families. When it's in the workplace, is it going to be a question of your career or your colleagues? If you're a Christian here this morning, I hope and pray that each and every day you will continue to make the more necessary for you choice rather than the better by far choice and not because it's a good thing to do. Though it is. And not because you can earn your salvation with God, because you can't. But because the very thing that is right at the heart of why Paul is doing this is he is showing to the Philippians the love of Christ for him. That's what makes this so powerful. Why is it that Paul would do all of this? It's because he's reflecting the love of Jesus for him. So you think about what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He has lived in eternity past in a perfect relationship with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We could say it's better by far for Jesus to have continued to enjoy that eternal experience. But in the language that we are going to read in chapter 2 soon, He didn't. He made himself nothing. 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? Because it was eternally more necessary for us that he come. What a saviour. That's why Paul desperately wanted every single day that Jesus gave him. In this life and all the way through death and into eternity, he wanted every moment to be about exalting Jesus. I hope and pray that Paul's passion has stirred your passion to do the same thing this morning. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Great God in heaven, we beg of you to make us people for whom that is true. Would we be so gripped by a desire to exalt Christ and bring others to exalt him too, that every moment of our lives would be directed towards that purpose. And may the wonderful truth that nothing, not even death, can separate us from his love give us confidence, even as we anticipate the day of our death, that that day will bring us great gain that is better by far. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.